The common concern that people have is that ambivalence in leadership will cause inaction. It'll cause right. hesitation and procrastination and delays. I've even been told by people, ambivalence kills people. But, you know, I've always had this model, right, in my father of ambivalence actually being a leadership strength. And so I was always pretty skeptical when I heard this feedback from people. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh business blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is July 28th, 2023, and we're talking with Naomi Rothman, a leading expert in the study of ambivalence. Dr. Rothman is an associate professor of management at Lehigh's College of Business, where she holds the Scott Hart's 68-term professorship. She also is associate dean and director for undergraduate programs for the College of Business. Welcome to the Illuminate podcast, Naomi. Thanks so much, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, let's start by uh, defining what ambivalence is and what it isn't. For example, in um, common usage, it's often ha has a negative connotation, getting conflated with indecisiveness or being wishy-washy and is viewed largely as a sign of weakness. So has ambivalence gotten a bad rap? And how should we understand ambivalence? <laughs> That's a great place to start. So scientifically, ambivalence is defined quite simply as the simultaneous experience of positive and negative emotions or thoughts, attitudes about one thing, so a single target. And that target can be a person, a situation, an object, an event, an idea. It can be about your work, right? It's best thought of as strongly positive and negative at the same time that you're pulled in two different directions. And it creates these internal feelings a lot of the time of being torn and conflicted. And so it, it really shouldn't be confused with words like indifference, right? Or indecisiveness. So indifference is kind of not caring. It's more like a shoulder shrug, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the lack of emotional reaction, right? Ambivalence is having both positive and negative reactions at the same time. And so as a social scientist, I'm really interested in understanding these ambivalent thoughts and feelings without providing judgment about them. For instance, removing any normative judgments. But I think you're right. Yes, in Western cultures, uh, like in North America, ambivalence often really gets a bad rap. It's um, and 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 there are some really interesting reasons that this may be the case. Ambivalence, I think, may go against our preferences in Western cultures for dominance and agency, for speed for positivity, right? And so I think you're onto something about with this notion that uh, ambivalence may be getting a bad rap and has for a while. Yeah, now what was it that first drew you to ambivalence as a focus for your academic research? <laughs> well, I think the best way to answer this question is to tell you a little bit about where I come from. So okay. <laughs> my father spent years, uh, I think nearly six years, studying for a PhD in Renaissance literature at UC Berkeley in the late 1960s and early 1970s before he became a writing professor and provost at UC Santa Cruz. And what this means is that he spent years 
reading Shakespeare, Michel de Montaigne, Giordano Bruno. And that's quite relevant, actually, for the construct of ambivalence, because in the second half of the 16th century, that was a time in which contrariety was widespread, so much so that one of the primary intellectual modalities of that period was this idea of contrariety. And so um, people like Castiglione, Paracelsus, even maintain that contrariety was the dominant principle of experience, that it could be positive, it could be healthy. In, 19, in 1644, John Milton even asserted, we learn by what, what is contrary. And so I was raised uh, by you know, my father and, and mother who were really kind of interested in the Renaissance, who took me every summer of my childhood to Shakespeare Santa Cruz to see Shakespeare plays. And my father would talk to me about the complicated relationships in these plays, like between Cordelia and King Lear and you know, in, in other texts, like in my English classes. And, and by doing this, he explicitly helped me notice and identify ambivalence in the world. But he did another thing as well, which was that he taught me to value ambivalence through the way in which he used ambivalence as a tool in his own teaching. Um, he used it in his leadership style. He used it in his communication style at the dinner table with my mom and dad and brother. Um, he got us to think more deeply, to you know, reconsider our assumptions, to explore ideas more expansively, to try to be less biased, to try to be more creative, to try to be less defensive when our beliefs were questioned. And my beliefs were often questioned because my brother's an economist and I'm a psychologist. Um, (laughs) But he would kind of rarely outright reject what we said, but he was also rarely outright agree with what we said. He was often quite ambivalent. And so I was raised to believe that ambivalence was this good thing. It could be a tool for learning. And I had seen it work in the way my dad interacted with us. And then imagine my astonishment when I moved to New York City in 2002 to start my PhD in organizational behavior at New York University. And I witnessed some things in the world that made me start questioning this this belief that ambivalence was good. So in, in one case, John Kerry was being lambasted for being ambivalent, a flip flopper, right? And I was really, really intrigued by this conundrum, right? How could ambivalence be this tool for learning, you know, as I had seen growing up and that my parents had taught me and yet be so costly for leaders. And so I basically embarked on 20 years of research on this one construct, ambivalence. You've said that you have two primary research questions that drive your work in this this field. Uh, One is... Is there a bias against leaders and managers who express emotional ambivalence? And the second is, what is the evolutionary function of emotional ambivalence? So how did you land on those particular questions to kind of frame that the, the work that you're doing? I think considering how much I'd seen ambivalence improve decision-making and thought, intellectual thought processes and collective dialogue through observing my own father, It really seemed to socially and intellectually engage other people. And so I found it really perplexing that it seemed detrimental for leaders. And I think that's where the original question I studied in my dissertation and have since studied a a bit more of, you know, is there a bias against leaders and managers who express ambivalence? You know, and I really wanted to understand that paradox. But in order to be able to present that there was a bias, I needed to established that there were benefits of experiencing and sharing this this experience or sharing our ambivalence with others. 
um, to show that there was misalignment between how we judge these individuals who are ambivalent and the benefits that they actually accrue from having ambivalent feelings and thoughts and showing it to others. Now, you've analyzed what you call the social functions of ambivalence uh, from, from four different perspectives. So let's take them one by one in order. Uh, the first looks at how expressing ambivalent affects interpersonal outcomes. So what do you mean by that? And what have some of your key findings been in that area? Let me just take one step back and say that this idea that ambivalence could be beneficial for us, right? When we feel it and when we show it, <laughs> um, the social functions of approach. Broadly speaking, this approach takes the perspective that emotions exist for a reason, right? And so that may go against some of your intuitions about, oh, well, emotions actually get in the way of rational decision-making, right? We often have this assumption that we should be non-emotional. But this approach on the evolutionary you know, study of emotions or understanding their benefits suggests that when we feel an emotion, it really provides us with information, right? It tells us about our environment. And, and so it can actually also help us respond appropriately to that environment in ways that might help us survive and thrive. And that even when we share our emotions with others, it also provides those other people with information about us. It might signal something even beyond what we're feeling. It might signal something about our personality or our intentions, how we are likely to behave when we negotiate with you, for instance. And so when I'm talking about the interpersonal level, I'm talking about, you know, what happens when I show my ambivalence when I'm in a social interaction with you? What happens when I show my ambivalence when we're negotiating with one another, when um, I'm your leader in a team? right? How is it that you respond to me? How do you perceive me? And how do you behave in reaction? And so in my original kind of initial research on this topic many, many years ago, I, I, I started to test these interpersonal effects. So I hired an actor from the Tisch School of Arts. I trained her to express emotional ambivalence in her face and her body. And so that really looks like the person is torn and conflicted between the positive and negative pulls, right? And I also trained her in separate video clips to express happiness, anger, and neutrality. And I made these short video clips of her negotiating with another person. I actually turned the sound off in these video clips uh, so that it was just the nonverbal behavior that I was utilizing um, to convey the, uh, the intended emotion. And so I invited people to the lab and I had them engage in a variety of different activities, depending on the study. In all the studies, they were randomly assigned to either see the ambivalent video where she showed ambivalence in the negotiation or happiness or anger or neutrality. And so they thought, okay, I'm going to see this video and then I'm probably going to interact with this person, right? I'm either going to negotiate with them or I'm going to have um, some meeting with this person, depending on the study. In the first study, they were told they were about to have an upcoming meeting with the person they saw in the video. They were going to try to come to an agreement on some issue relevant to them. And they would then have to explain their, their position to the experimenter. It was a little bit competitive. Um, and so after they watched the video, I asked them what they think about the other person. How did they perceive her? 
And how did they think they were plan? How did they plan to act in this upcoming meeting? Right? Were they going to be open-minded to this other person, or were they going to be closed-minded and try to dominate the discussion, shut her down? And what I found was that participants who had been randomly assigned to the ambivalent video, where they saw their partner express emotional ambivalence, and then they thought they were going about about to interact with her in a meeting, come to a decision with her, they intended to be a whole lot more closed-minded to her ideas than participants who'd seen her express happiness, anger, or neutrality. But then I wanted to see if there were material costs. So how do people behave when money's on the line, right? When mm. they have an ambivalent negotiation partner. And so in this next study, I had them do an, a traditional ultimatum bargaining game where there's $10 that they were tasked to split between themselves and the person they viewed in the video. These were separate participants, by the way. These were all separate studies. And in this simple ultimatum bargaining game, basically all the participants had the opportunity to split the $10. But, right, in these games, the other person gets to say yes or no. If the other person, in this case, the person in the video said no, nobody gets any money. But if the other person says yes to your offer, then they split the money and they get to walk away with, the, with their uh, proceeds. What I found was that participants who had viewed the ambivalent video, who thought they were negotiating with an ambivalent negotiation partner, took significantly more money from her than individuals who saw her express happiness, anger, or neutrality. And they also tested why this was the case. So what were the perceptions that they were developing about their ambivalent negotiation partner? Why were they taking more money from her? Why were they being intending to be more closed-minded towards her um, in this upcoming meeting? You know, what information does ambivalence provide to other people? And it turned out that people took more money from her because they saw her as less dominant. They perceived her as somebody who was less assertive and less dominant. And so they saw it as an invitation to take more money. The reason mm. they saw her as less dominant was she seemed more deliberative. She seemed more thoughtful. So I want to be really clear, though, about these studies. They were actually all relatively competitive, right? So kind of zero-sum context, where my gain is your loss and your gain is my loss. Uh, their goal was to earn as much for themselves as possible. And so in that context, ambivalence in the, in the partner, in the negotiation partner, invited more dominant behavior. But I wasn't fully satisfied with these findings. I wanted, I didn't think it told the complete story. I wanted to know if sharing your emotional ambivalence with another person could also be an invitation for social and intellectual engagement, like my father, I had seen with my father. And I thought, you know, it's probable that the social norms matter, right? When my dad showed his ambivalence, he was often in a teaching context or he was out sitting around the dinner table and we were all, you know, in a conversation together. Uh, we weren't pitted against one another, right? We were kind of metaphorically sitting on the same side of the table. And so I really wondered if the norms mattered, right? Maybe in more cooperative relationships, right? In which we're kind of emphasizing our mutual benefits, our mutual gain, that sharing ambivalence could actually be really helpful. And so I ran uh, another set of series of experiments um, in the negotiation context. Uh, I used the same videos that I'd used for my dissertation research. Before I had negotiators um, start negotiating, I reminded them that their goal was to try to 
do well themselves, but also to try to help their partner do well, right? I, I made the, the, the norms much more cooperative. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that in these, these studies, when people negotiated with somebody who they saw as ambivalent in the video, they actually created the highest total value. So they were able to make trades over multiple issues uh, according to preferences. Maybe they give it, gave in on the things they cared a little bit less about, right? They gave in to their partner and they let them have the things they cared about, but they, but they, but they, but they asked for what they really wanted on the, on the topics and issues that they cared the most about. And we were actually able to replicate these effects in several different negotiation experiments. And we found that in these studies, in fact, ambivalence again signaled low dominance. But that wasn't a problem in these more cooperative negotiations. It actually inspired the negotiators to problem solve in a kind of mutual, uh, to come to mutually agreeable solutions uh, that made everyone better off, right? Win-win situations, win-win outcomes. Um, It didn't inspire them to try to take charge and take advantage. And so in summary, you know, this work at the interpersonal level of analysis, I've found that the expression of ambivalence represents a liability in more competitive contexts, right? It's an invitation for other people to be dominant over you, right? They might take more money. They might take more airtime from you if you show your ambivalence in a competitive context, but you can really benefit from expressing ambivalence in more cooperative contexts. In fact, in these more cooperative contexts, it's an invitation for other people to become more socially and intellectually engaged in problem solving. You can actually create better win-win agreements if you show your ambivalence in more cooperative contexts. Hmm, That's fascinating. Now, individual decision-making is the next kind of grouping of of research you've done in this uh, how experiencing ambivalence shapes individual decision making and what role does the concept of cognitive flexibility play in your research here and again what are, what are some of the main findings sure so i just want to remind you the the background which is when we feel an emotion it provides us with information about our environment it helps us respond to our environment in ways that can help us survive and thrive so what does ambivalence tell us right Well, we know that ambivalence often occurs in situations that involve contradiction and change, like college graduation day can (laughs) provoke emotional ambivalence. Uh, People have used the movie Father of the Bride to provoke ambivalence in laboratory experiments. Uh, I would say many of us felt emotional ambivalence during COVID as a result of all the contradiction and change that was going on, you know, contradictory policies and you know, decision rules, all the change that was happening in our lives. And the interesting thing about contradiction and change is that they call for balanced and flexible thinking. They they demand that we get a little bit more flexible um, and balanced. Um, I don't know about you, but for two, during COVID with two young children at home and putting my leadership class online, you know, for the first time, I had to be extremely flexible in the way I thought about how to do work. You and I were just talking about where we work, you know, in our homes and how we moved where we work in our homes during COVID, right? In order to adapt to this complex and contradictory, you know, work from home situation, right? Um, And so the more anxious I felt, 
the less cognitively flexible I was. The more ambivalent I felt, both positive and negative, the more flexible I became. And that's actually exactly what my co-author Shmuel and I had theorized that ambivalence could do for us. We even suggested in a paper back in 2017 that ambivalence may have developed as this mechanism, this affective mechanism that lets us or enables us to more flexibly respond and adapt to our complex and changing circumstances, right? It's telling us that the world is complex and it's it's drawing our attention to complex information. And uh, we are then motivated to try to respond in a way that will help us uh, respond adaptively. So we actually now have growing empirical evidence across numerous studies that support this claim, that feeling emotional ambivalence, right? When we ask people, recall a time in which you felt really happy and really sad at the same time, And they write about this experience in depth such that if somebody were to read it themselves, they would feel those same, you know, ambivalent feelings that when we ask people to do that, they become more cognitively flexible. They respond to measures of cognitive flexibility. They have higher scores on measures of cognitive flexibility. They also have higher scores on measures of things like open-mindedness. They seek both positive and negative feedback, for instance, about a job candidate, instead of just affirmatory positive information or disconfirmatory negative information, they become less defensive to feedback, for instance, that they may have prejudice towards another social group. Uh, So they are less likely to derogate and see the uh, test results as invalid. They become more accurate in their forecasts and are more aware of um, bias in the self and society. And so, one way of describing this effect overall across these numerous studies and papers is that feeling emotionally ambivalent actually helps us see the bigger picture compared to when you feel a singular, you know, one valent uh, emotion like pure happiness or pure sadness or pure anxiety. Now, from individual decision-making, you next have been looking at leader decision-making. So how does experiencing ambivalence shape the way leaders make decisions? And you've talked some about this already, but I'd be curious um, what else you found. So this is, I think, a really exciting path in my research because a common concern that people have is that ambivalence in leadership will cause inaction right? It'll cause hesitation and procrastination and delays, right? I've even been told by people, ambivalence kills people. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I've always had this model, right? In my father of ambivalence actually being a leadership strength. And so I was always pretty skeptical when I heard this, uh, this feedback from people. And so we originally wrote a theory, Shmuel and I, about um, how ambivalence could help be helpful to leaders, particularly in contexts that involve change and complexity. And we've now tested this theory in numerous empirical studies. And here's what we found. In one paper, we found that when leaders experience ambivalence, maybe they're mixed and conflicted about their consulting work project. Those leaders tend to be more likely to seek and utilize the knowledge and ideas of their team members. They actually seek more information from their team members. They don't just rely on their own expertise and knowledge. They're not just the sole hero or heroine, right? And -hmm. what's even better is that through a social learning process, those team members then start to seek more information from each other. 
right? So the leader is modeling how to be an effective teammate. And they're fostering an environment where people seek others' expertise, and that becomes the norm for behavior. And you know what's even better? Those teams perform better on objective performance measures. And we've tested this both in the laboratory and with real teams in consulting firms, where the consulting clients report the performance of those teams, right? So it's completely independent measures of performance. And so what we see is that this flow of benefits are in fact even more likely to occur when the projects are really complex, right? And so ambivalent leaders are paying attention to the task context. They're saying, this is a really complex project. So I'm going to ask my team members what they know, what they perceive, what they can tell me about how to solve this problem. And they're more likely to do that, these ambivalent leaders, when the projects are complex, and they're not going to do it when the projects are simple, right? And so this tells us that the leaders are able, the ambivalent leaders are able to adjust and adapt their behavior according to the situational requirements. They're not simply just relying on other people to do their work. They're noticing that the problems are complex and would benefit from a more diverse pool of information in order to solve it. So what's more, we've recently found in a series of studies that we're writing up for another journal article that when leaders show their emotional ambivalence to their team members, so they express it and their team members are even able to detect it or perceive it, those team members perceive those leaders, those ambivalent leaders as more open to input and better listeners than the less ambivalent leaders. And this actually inspires the team members to speak up with constructive ideas and to be more innovative. And the reason for this, and I think this is absolutely the best part as an educator, is because ambivalence increases their team members' intellectual curiosity. I just think that's so cool. Wow, that is. Now, the flipping it to uh, the, the next one, which is looking at how expressing ambivalence shapes the outcomes of followers in groups and teams, there seems to be an interesting paradox here that when team members or followers show ambivalence, it actually enhances their performance. But because they don't necessarily look like leaders the way other people perceive them, it actually harms their chances of being promoted. So what's going on with that? Yeah. And this is the, this is our warning signal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we, as, um, a society have certain stereotypes in our minds about what leaders look like, right? And those leaders tend to be, these stereotypes in our minds at least, tend to be decisive and dominant and agentic and positive. And we don't always gain from showing our ambivalence. And so what we found is that even though ambivalence cultivates these ways of thinking that we need in our leaders, right? We need cognitively flexible leaders. We need open-minded leaders. We need leaders who are open to balanced, both positive and negative feedback, right? Who are less defensive, who are more accurate in forecasting and more aware of bias. Ambivalence does not help you get into a leadership position. So it actually won't help you get promoted. It can even lead you to get lower raises particularly if you have bosses who are low in humility. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if we go back to where we started this conversation, 
right? Ambivalence, where I started in my dissertation research was in negotiations, right? When you show your ambivalence in a competitive negotiation, where there's a win or lose dynamic, right? Right. You end up getting dominated, taken advantage of. People take your airtime, take airtime in a meeting and they take more money from you. Here we're showing, yeah, and if you show your ambivalence as a as a subordinate or you know, a team member, you may actually not get the promotion that you're looking for. And you may not get higher raises or raises that are as high as somebody who's less ambivalent. And this suggests to me that ambivalence appears to be wrong, quote unquote, wrong in status contests, right? Mm -hmm. These are contexts where we really value independence, dominance, agency, right? Now, it it sounds like the world would be a better place if more people were free to experience and express ambivalence if they weren't afraid to show it for fear of appearing weak. How do we bridge that gap? You know, I'm not sure. I think if we feel our ambivalence instead of suppressing it, the evidence suggests we might make better decisions, right? Especially when we're making complex decisions, right? And I think if we share our ambivalence with others, the evidence does suggest we might be better at socially and intellectually engaging with others. And this can help us achieve win-win innovative solutions to big problems, right? Okay. So you might argue that the world would be better if more people became, you know, effective, complex decision makers and better at socially and intellectually engaging others towards win-win innovative solutions. But that might also depend on your opinion. (laughs) Those may not uh, indicate a better world for some people. Okay. Now, what are some of the the next directions you see your research uh, regarding ambivalence heading in? So I'm really interested in the context. So the cultural values and norms that make ambivalence, quote unquote, right. And the context, the cultural values and norms that make ambivalence, quote unquote, wrong. I really love the psychologist Dove Cohen's research on cultures of honor in the South that indicate that we have different norms within the United States that dictate how we respond to being insulted, right? (laughs) Um, And so I've wondered, inspired by his work, if there could be different geographic regions or different subgroups or subcultures that have different norms that shape how we we react to ambivalence. You know, my having moved from California, Santa Cruz, California, to New York, and then to the Midwest, and then now to Pennsylvania and New Jersey, right? I've witnessed very, you know, interesting cultural, uh, cultural differences in our, in our own country. And I think it's, it's fascinating to understand those differences and to unpack them and how they shape our reactions to different emotional displays. I'm also really excited about the research I'm doing with McKay Price and Corinne Post on CEO ambivalence and earnings calls and the impact that that ambivalence can have on abnormal market returns and how those reactions of the marketplace, reactions of the marketplace to CEO ambivalence depend on the gender of the CEO. And I'll let you guess how gender works there. <laughs> okay. Now, finally, is there anything about your research on ambivalence that we haven't talked about that you think our listeners should know or would be interested in? 
Sure. I I think some people, many people I've I've spoken with have um, let me know that this wasn't a construct that they had been taught, that this was a new construct, a new word for an experience that they know they have felt, but that they maybe didn't have the word for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's entirely plausible. <laughs> uh, and and I think it's it's really interesting to think about what does it mean to now have the word and the construct to help us understand our, our in- internal experiences, right? Um, and for me, having that word and, and having a value system in place to tell me that it was an asset and not a liability to feel ambivalence has been quite helpful in that I don't see it as threatening. Uh, I would say perhaps to try to pay attention to your ambivalence, um, to notice when you're feeling torn and conflicted on the inside, positive and negative about some decision or idea and try to refrain from judging it, right? Notice when others are ambivalent and try to refrain from judging it. Remind yourself that it's not something to necessarily rid yourself of, but rather to settle into it. It doesn't need to be a liability and it doesn't also need to make you feel threatened. In fact, it can actually be a source of open-mindedness, cognitive flexibility, creativity, awareness. It can be a source of social and intellectual curiosity and engagement when we share it with others. And it also can improve our decision-making and our performance as, as collective decision-makers. And so I think I would encourage us to be curious about it okay. <laughs> instead of trying to um, control it or shut it down in ourselves and others. I think that optimistic note is a good way for us to conclude. So Naomi, thanks so much for being with us on the Illuminate podcast today. Thank you so much, Jack. It was a pleasure. I'd like to once again thank Naomi Rothman for being with us on Illuminate today. Naomi has written on topics related to ambivalence in numerous academic journals, and her research has been covered in various media outlets, including New York Magazine, Fast Company, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, ABC News, the BBC, and National Public Radio. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business Thought Leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.